We relinquished color when we relinquished sunshine and did away with differences. We gained control of many things, but we had to let go of others. All right, welcome to Wheel of Genre. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. And this week, we are reading Lois Lowry's The Giver. Bob, have you read this book before? So I read it, I think, in middle school, maybe, and then read it again a few years ago. But recently, many of my students from last year who are now in seventh grade, when I asked them, what are you reading in class? Everyone's reading The Giver right now. And I felt very stupid saying, yes, that's the one about the old man and the... And the young boy <laughs> couldn't give a lot of information. So I thought well, I should read it. So I'm dragging you into it. Love it. Love it. Well, I'm happy to read it. Right now we're reading this in the context of dystopian novels. I think there's a couple ways we could read this novel as a coming of age tale, for example, as a, well, I guess that's science all fiction. I really thought about as a coming of age tale. <laughs> <laughs> well, science fiction too. I know Lois sure, Lowry sure. doesn't like calling it a science fiction, apparently. I thought we might talk about that later. But, yeah, that's um, interesting. Maybe a dystopian. And we've we've covered dystopian novels before. I'm sure the people in the novel would consider it a utopia, however. Well, I think that's the thing about dystopias is that it has to be a utopia for someone. Like in some way, it has to offer <laughs> a utopian promise but but I think the way a dystopia functions is the revelation that there's something, there's a little rot to the core of this apple, so to speak. I think, what did John say? I think when we read, we read a story, another dystopian story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. And John came away with that thinking, everyone has their own private Idaho. So I'm sure all of these people, in lots of these people do really believe in this society and that it should continue. I never liked the society. From the beginning, I felt uncomfortable. But I know Lowry has said in interviews, I really want it to feel comfortable and that it is appealing at the beginning. Yeah, I think that's an important rhetorical move to make it feel comfortable and good, speaking broadly as a genre of a dystopia. We need to have some level of buy-in. There needs to be something offered to us. Yeah, just think all these people are idiots. They have to have a good reason for liking this Yeah, yeah. So- when talking about this book, maybe we should talk about first what they give up and then yes. what is promised. Because I think what I want to say, we really need to get out in the open what what they're giving up. So maybe we could popcorn this. I'll go first. Colors. <laughs> age. You lose old people and you also don't really do anything when you age. So you don't age normally. Desire. So they, when they hit, I guess, I guess that would be puberty. They start to feel the stirrings. The stirrings. Yeah. The stirrings. And that's when they take a pill every day to, mm. I couldn't tell if this was like a puberty blocker kind of thing, or if it literally just made you feel nothing, you know, like no desire for anything or anyone. Oh, well, yeah. they're so, okay. Another thing that they give up, and this might continue our conversation here about what do the, what do people desire still in the society? Eventually, Jonas, when he's working with the giver, The giver is giving Jonas, who's the main character, these memories. Jonas, for the first time, even though he has a family, he experiences love. And when he comes out of that memory, he thinks, oh my God, I'm missing out on so much. This is extremely important. This scene is of grandparents who don't exist in this world. It's a scene of grandparents from 100, 200 years ago at Christmas. And Jonas says, oh, this is the first time I've ever felt love. When he tries to say that to his parents, they tell him, no, 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 no. 
That is not the correct word to use. You might enjoy time with us. You might even like our personalities, but you don't love us. That's ridiculous. You give up desire to be loved. You give up desire to love someone else. I don't want to get, I don't want to turn into wheel of genre, the, you know, the philosophers, but maybe we should try to pick apart what love is in the context of this book and in general. What they describe as love, it seemed like, it seemed like, so, so this society is all about precision of language and yeah. people are constantly knocking each other for not being precise enough. Their responses to the word love, to me, all felt like they missed the mark of what love is. Like, mm-hmm. like they were all, they were all like feelings or emotions or actions that are, that, that they were treating as synonyms to love, but like, you know you know, you can be angry with someone and still love them, or you can be breaking up with someone. You could be ending your relationship and still love them. You know what I mean? So that what that tells you is that love isn't necessarily an action and it isn't necessarily an emotion. It's kind of like a perspective or way of relating to other people. That dimension of it seems to be totally missing from their definition. And they seem to operate strictly on pure definitions in this society. Love in this seems to have almost been bred out of people or bred out of society. Like we talked about earlier, there's no grandparents. And that's because there is no family family. Family is assigned. So Jonas's parents didn't give, like his mom didn't give birth to Jonas. His mom and dad, they don't have the stirrings. So they've probably never consummated their marriage. We don't know that, but I'm guessing that's the case. It's just your role, and you must do your role, or you're given a certain punishment. And if you have a bad attitude about your role, you're given another punishment. So there's all of these things to remind you to accept that there is no love, to not even notice that there is no color, to not even notice that you have any emotions. The only like biological thing that they can't escape seems to be the stirrings. That's why they have to take a pill. They have to change their chemistry to stop that feeling. They're trying to breed even feelings out. Anytime there's a little bit of anger, you share it, you say why you were angry, and then an elder, your guardians, your parents, explain to you why it's unreasonable to be angry or it's imprecise to be angry. Let's get back to what they've given up because I actually, we haven't exhausted everything and we we haven't even talked about the core thing that they're giving up. I mean, you, you gesture towards it, but mm. it's memory, right? They are giving up memory but it's it's hard to understand what in what sense of memory because you know if you put down your keys to your car and you know where to go look for them next time you want to drive that's a certain kind of memory it doesn't seem like they've given up that kind of memory it seems like they're mm. they've given up long-term emotionally laden memories not just bad painful ones but also mm. good joyous ones well, I think there's there's no chance for bad, painful memories. Everything has been so articulated, or everything has been so designed that you can't even have bad experiences like that. Some people do, and then if you run into that kind of thing, there are procedures. For example, if a community member unexpectedly dies, and this almost never happens, because if you're old, you're released. We'll talk about that later. But a young person dies, and what they had to do is the ceremony of loss where everyone says their name again and again. So no matter what, there is always this catharsis. You know, you have, you experience the emotions as a community and the emotions are then gone. There is no room for painful memories because there are no painful experiences. Jonas can remember to early childhood because he remembers being nine and getting his bike. 
He remembers meeting Asher, his best friend, when he's even younger. So they can remember, compared to a regular person, they can remember like that. What they've given up is the generational memory. It's almost like every 30 years is cut away and there's only the present. There's no (laughs) past 30 years. There's only the current and your your 25 years of memory and that's it. And those memories aren't carried on to the next people either. I just learned a great word, eon, which I took to just mean a really long amount of time. It actually just yeah. means a human lifespan. So oh. so they just live in an ever-present eon. Like they have their eon mm. and that's that's it. But I like what you said about how, yeah, they have these these rituals and birth and death are kind of a ritual, but nowhere near the ritual that we make of them today. Like there's no funeral. Mm-hmm. There's just, you know, everyone says kind of goodbye and they, they lead them to a room and the person looks happy and then they inject them. Well, that's so, only that's only if they're young. Like if it's an old person, nobody oh. knows. Nobody knows. They're just old and it's time to die. And yeah, the yeah. people who, that they raised have no idea. Jonas says that, oh, when my parents are older, I'll be too busy. I don't even know that they're being released. Yeah, yeah. So there's yeah, there's no funerals at all. But it's, it's interesting how everything, like, so we've substituted long-term memory and <laughs> long-term record keeping and long-term like stories, I guess you could say for a kind of ritualization of everything it's like a it's like a dance you know they're they're dancing through life but like in the sense of like yeah well like in the sense of like you know what you're going to be doing when you're three you know what you're going to be doing you know at age eight girls lose their pigtails at age nine or at age five they get a different kind of shirt you know Mm -hmm. like like there's these it's it's very institutional they've institutionalized the rituals of growing up, and then and then when you're an adult, you're shuttled off into your position, and that's what you do until you die. I really liked this. Was when I felt really uncomfortable. There's a cert, there's a really special ceremony for when you turn 12, and that's when you get that job assignment. And I really like what she says to all of these kids. She's giving them their jobs. You work at the fishery. You are a cook. You are a teacher. And then she tells everyone. Thank you for your childhood. This childhood is now over and it's like (laughs) something they cash out. So we've learned what they've given up. Mm. It's not ever really made clear to me what they've gained. And I think that to me, this is the entire problem I had with the novel Mm. is that I never saw an upside to this. Like I want to know what the upside is to this and it hasn't been made clear to me there i think there is no death you never experience the idea of death people go away they are released jonas has no idea what release means he figures that out because the giver says okay now you have special special privileges you go ask i want to see what being released is and he sees this but as a kid growing up the old go into the house of the old and then they are released somewhere else you never see dead bodies you just see one, they saw one accident, but there's no risk for anyone. There's no risk at all. And the people associate no risk and no making mistakes with being right, being morally right, being morally correct, and being safe. If people could make their own decisions, they think it would be dangerous. When they're talking about, Jonas is asking, why are we assigned these jobs? And why do I have to be the giver? And he says, well, okay, I guess it would be dangerous if people could choose what job they got because maybe they wouldn't be any good at it. So what they give up is the embarrassment or the pain of making a mistake or having a risk or dying. So they've given up not only events 
like life, mm. major life events, but they've also given up the feelings that, that come with those major life events. Somehow, it's interesting, even though I know they say that in the book, but I don't necessarily feel that in the book. Does that make like sense? Like giving up the feeling, giving up emotions yeah, and feeling? Yeah. yeah. I don't know what it is. It just rubbed me this weird way, but mm. that maybe that's my own personal problem and my own you know, <laughs> reading of this book. Okay, here's a thought. Maybe the fact that this is written for such a young audience prevents <laughs> Lowry from giving us a truly heinous situation and presenting it in a kind of like cold. Well, no, that's not true because we're given a, a child that's injected. Yeah. Injects herself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Two scenes. A baby two that's scenes, injected yeah. and a child who injects herself be released. But all, the, all those mm. scenes happen post Jonas kind of like embracing the emotionality of life. So, mm-hmm. so as a as a reader, we experience the full emotion of that with Jonas. We don't mm-hmm. ever get a moment as a reader where this is presented positively, like, "Oh, thank goodness that we didn't have to experience," you know, blah blah blah. In fact, mm-hmm. the only moment I can think of in this book that introduces the society is it, it opens up with an airplane flying over the town and everyone kind of yeah. freaking out. So yeah. what we're presented there is not safety, but actually frailty. We're, we're presented mm. a world that is closed in with a strong fear of the outside. And you almost see their their vulnerability. When, they, when this happens, no one knows what to do. There, there's no protection for them because they're all terrified. So yeah. it, it, it's a mystery to me as a reader, but... I, well, the mystery to me, too, is like how I guess North Korea is closed off. People can't go there. The people who live there often don't know. I have a feeling people there have a feeling of what's going on outside of North Korea. But here, yeah, yeah people, how are this many people who've been so become so bland and have no real lives? How are they not influenced by anything outside? It's interesting. They've controlled it that much. And airplanes and other societies still exist and can fly over. But then later, the airplane becomes like a spying tool used by this community to, to track down Jonas. So it's yeah. unclear if the airplane is owned by them or is an outside society. It must be another represent is a representation of an outside society, but I'm not sure. I think I th- you know we kind of see that airplane echoed in "Don't Worry, Darling" with uh, Florence Pugh. The moment that she realizes that the world she's in is kind of like a Stepford Wives illusion involves oh. an airplane flying across the sky and then like disappearing in a very surreal way. But but I like that iconography of like the airplane, something that comes from the outside into the space being the signal that not all is right. Of course, we get we get multiple signals that not all is right. Let's not forget how he's tossing an apple back and forth to his friend. And then he says it changes. Well, how does it change? It becomes red. So so he kind of like pierces the veal of it. Okay, let's let's talk about this color thing because <laughs> I want to throw something out at you. You can agree or disagree with this definition of a dystopia. In a dystopia, we need to be presented with something that our society in the real world is currently moving towards. And the author should be showing us what will happen if we don't change our ways. Right. We need to have a path towards that dystopia and we need to have the choice to be able to avert it as a reader if we change how we live. We are currently in no danger of moving towards a society 
where people won't want to see the color red, if that makes sense. Like, like no one is arguing uh, for a colorless society. In fact, their kind of technological explanation of it being like genetic modification is interesting, but then it's also like, well, if it's genetic modification, how are people regaining the ability? It seems to be psychological. If people can just kind of like flick it on and off with the inclusion of new memories. So there, there's this element in which like as a dystopia, it, it all right, to me, this feels like a negative fable in the sense of we're being presented mm. with a world that has no connection with our own rather than a dystopia where it's a kind of like skewed view of our current world. So, the, so okay, dystopia needs to be a warning and it needs to have needs to be grounded in our current situation to say, okay, if we continue in this path, we're going to end up like this. I think The Giver does have some warnings and it is similar a little bit to the way that we live. This is all about making things safe. This is all about teaching kids to be right and to teach others to be right. So it's very moral. This world is very moral. And in that way, that might be good. We can all improve our society, make it run more smooth. So it all looks very appealing. The issue with colors they talk about why, Jonas also says this, this is a beautiful color. Why would anyone not want to see red? So he talks with the giver and they say, well, if you add more adjectives, if you have more colors, then people can start to want to choose. They can start to think for themselves. They start to make choices. Choices are dangerous. That's when they have that conversation about jobs. Really? Well, yes, that would be dangerous if I just wanted to be the fishery person one day and then the next day I wanted to be in charge of traffic. That is dangerous. I see society would break down. Yes, maybe maybe it's a little hard to suspend disbelief because we don't have a real science fiction explanation of it. We're not exactly sure if it's they're breeding out seeing red or if it's psychological. One might say Jonas could be immune to that biological breeding. Like he has a special gene, a disposition to allow him to break out of this this habit, but it's probably just people are forgetting. Again, it's about memory, like you said, and giving up on memories. There is a lot of engineered forgetting, and it's forgetting yeah. to the level of not being able to perceive. So I think Lois Lowry might be warning us that if we if we make things too perfect, if we polish things up, if we continue to improve in certain ways, it might get too dull. I have an example, I think, that kids who are like 15, 16, 17 right now, they're going to ask my niece about her classmates. And whenever Harry Potter comes up, of course, the Harry Potter house comes up. What do you think like 20 years ago, people, sorry, 15 years ago, people most wanted to join which house of Harry Potter? Uh, Gryffindor, I believe. Okay, 20 now, years ago. 20 years ago, everyone only wants to be Hufflepuff. I keep hearing people who are, you know, preferring Hufflepuff want to be Hufflepuff. Do you remember the Hufflepuff motto? No. It's, and we will take the rest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the smart group, the powerful group, the brave group, and then Hufflepuff. And we'll take the rest. And we'll take the rest. So no offense to the Hufflepuff people, but recently there is a good emphasis, and maybe this is good, but, you know, always being kind to each other, but also never having any conflict. So I think we are now extremely anti-conflict, and we're almost trying to engineer conflict out of any conversation of any situation. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. that's not the case, but I think that is often like the pedagogy for teachers is to teach kids, it's all fine. Yeah. Maybe that's good, but I wonder if Lois Lowry was worried about that, Yeah. making, making life bland. I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, but I just okay. saw a TikTok arguing mm -hmm. that Rowling did Slytherin wrong, or rather as a reader, our experience of Slytherin house is skewed because we only meet Draco and his goons. But actually, the, the Slytherins are quite quite noble and I don't want to say good, but you know, 
the person was basically arguing that, hey, let's reconsider Slytherin for the great house that they are rather well, yeah. than this, the skewed perspective of Harry Potter. That's Yeah, that's fair. I think what Rowling does, though, is really impressive in the way that she gives even those houses an arc. Because, yes, it used to be noble. It was noble. But now that nobility, you know, 100, 200 years later, I think, after Salazar Slytherin, now that nobility is just racism. We are the noble. Sure, Everyone sure. else is not the noble. Yeah. Well, I, wa- I wonder if that kind of a decline happened in Lowry's world. And, you know, yes. we don't quite get to see it because... I, I do think that it's been going on so long that perhaps there was a very good reason for, for Lowry's dystopian society to be set up like this in The mm-hmm. Giver. But, you know, coming at it from the perspective of a child, I think it doesn't make sense. And maybe this is a, a point in which I'd like to talk about the intended audience for this book and the perspective mm-hmm. in which it's written. Because and I the think style, that, maybe. Yeah. yeah, as an adult, I have so many questions that were kind of left unanswered. But that's not really the point of the book. The point of the book is to replicate the kind of universal childhood experience of growing up into a world that pre-exists you and that you don't understand the institutions and traditions of that world, but you're forced to kind of acclimate to them. And I think that this is like a universal childhood experience. And And I think that super... Young people, they come in and they're like, well, let's just change everything. You know, like this doesn't make sense. <laughs> yes. So let's, let's just wipe the table clean. Yeah. And maybe as you get older, you kind of see that it's not as easy as just saying, let's just change everything because it's an ingrained set pattern of behaviors. Kids are wiggish. Like, yeah. And so, so I think that, I think that as a book, this one really captures that experience well, or that feeling well. I think that she does a good job of like replicating that perspective and experience. Kind of like in an administrative way, right? There, there's no red hot like revolution here. You know, it's not kids trashing the past. It's like it has been so well organized that there is no past. Probably this is a middle reader. This won the Newbery Award which is typically from like ages 9 to 12, maybe 13. And for that reader, do you think it has that appeal of no past and our present is better for that reader? Honestly, no. I think I think that I think that Lowry is describing that experience that I talked about earlier, but I think that for that reader, mm. I think that this is kind of a instructive book. Like okay, mm. so let's say I had like Pinocchio. a kid. Yeah, I got like Pinocchio. Like let's say I had mm. a kid and their cousin died in a bike accident and they were hit with a lot of emotions they didn't understand. They were like, oh, why do I feel like this? You know, I don't know what to do about all this grief. And maybe they weren't processing their emotions in like a healthy way. Maybe this would be the kind of book I would give them to kind of like start a conversation about how emotions aren't something that you want to suppress or euphemize into just positive good feelings all the time. Emotions are something that you actually want to feel and are actually one of the defining experiences of being given. I was watching so an interview with Lois Lowry, and I thought this was very interesting. And to your point, she got inspired to write this. And she said, this was completely different from the other books I was writing. But I was inspired. She wrote this when she was kind of older, I think in her 60s, maybe. And her parents were both in nursing homes. And she said her mom was fairly functional, but she lost her vision completely. She was blind and she couldn't get around very well because she was suddenly blind. Uh, she didn't have a, you know, she wasn't used to it. Her father 
was suddenly had very serious Alzheimer's and couldn't remember more than five minutes. So she said she would go and visit her mom. They, they were at the same rest home and she'd go visit her mom, talk to her, and her mom would go into these rich details about her memories, about her childhood, about, and she would sit there and listen for hours. Then she would go and talk to her father and Lois Lowry's sister died very young. She would go and talk to her father and say, just talk about the past. The father wouldn't remember the sister. Then she would bring out a photo book. Father would see the sister and say, oh, that's your sister, but whatever happened to her? Lois Lowry would have to say, oh, she died. And then her father would feel the emotion as if she had just died. This is how Lois describes it, is her father had to mourn right then. And then they would talk again. He would get over it. Five minutes would pass. And then he would look at the picture again and say, that's your sister, but what happened to her? That would be quite an experience. And I think she was probably thinking a little bit of that, of emotions. You, You have to deal with them. You have to experience them. You can't just shut them off even if they're painful. And she was dealing with these painful emotions. She had to deal with her father going through those painful emotions again and again and again and again every time she went to go see them. And she could have said, I'm not going to see my parents anymore. She could have said no more, but she wanted to do what felt right to her and go and still talk to them, even though it was really painful, I'm sure. I can, So I can, I can see that kind of like open wound, you know, that kind yeah. of like emotional raw nerve getting touched again and again and again. Yeah. Serving as kind of like an emotional catalyst for the world that Lowry is describing here. But another issue that we found is why is it kind of a dystopia? I'm really curious about this going from thinking about memory, losing memory or limiting lim- memory, experimenting with that, and then suddenly having this dystopia. I guess one idea could be that this is a classic thing you learn in school again and again and again to all the kids who say, I hate history. Why are we learning it? Teacher always says, if you learn about what happened in the past, we can make sure we don't redo it in the future. Or we don't repeat the past. This book has a lot of that. And it's, it's that maxim taken far to the extreme, to the point of if we institutionalize lessons learned from the past, then we can never, ever repeat the past. We only repeat the present on cycle again and again and again uh, and again, because we have all the rules figured out. I wonder dance. if that might be the connection. It's a dance. It's a. I mean, there's no past or future to a dance. You know what I mean? It's just like a yeah. repetition of, you know, you wouldn't talk about the history of, well, maybe you could talk about the history of dancing, but you know what I mean? Like, like uh, as a pattern, mm-hmm. especially if we're talking about like a square dance or, you know, whatever, like it's a, it's an endlessly repeatable action that is meaningful only within its own kind of network of meaning, its own kind of, you know, a left turn is only meaningful in the context of like the steps that came before. NASCAR. Oh, yes. And NASCAR. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) That was stupid. So it's only meaningful in the steps that came before it. Yeah. I'm I'm going to hang on to this dance metaphor and and think about it a little bit more. But what's the, the, John, whatever Michael Montgomery, the life's a dance you learn as you go. Totally the opposite here. Life's a dance. You don't learn anything. You just go. You don't learn anything. You you just do it again and again and again. Yeah. (laughs) And not only do you perform the dance, but also your children perform the dance. Well, yep. and they're not even really your children per se. Right. I mean, it sounds yeah. like we have a Plato's Republic thing going on here where very much, yeah. You have I, I forget exactly what they're called, like the breeders or something like that. Uh-huh. Where certain people are assigned the role of birthing mother and yeah. they have three children and then they're kind of shuttled off to the workforce. It is described as not a It's an important job, but not a prestigious is that yeah, the not prestigious about? job yeah. it's described as an important job but not a prestigious one so what? yeah and it, it's interesting how like everyone kind of looks the same except for 
some people have light eyes. And to me, what that kind of signals is that there's a kind of like genetic uniformity of people in this community, except for maybe like one birthing mother. Because like, am I correct in reading that Jonas and Gabriel, the small child, both share the quality of having light colored eyes? I don't remember that, but they also both share the ability to receive memories. Yeah. They might be from the same birthing mother. It's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. You know what was low-key messed up about the... Well, it's already messed up, but low-key really disturbing about the birthing mothers. Never is the birthing father mentioned. And I just mm. immediately thought of the Benny Slalax. Oh, yeah. Thought, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Flashbacks. Yeah. Flashbacks. Yeah. Well, on the surface, this this book doesn't really share a lot with the Dune universe. Yeah. yeah. I do think that this is an important point and maybe an important aspect of dystopia because the Benny Tleleks in Dune are painted as negative, like a negative society, mm. maybe even a dystopic society. But the dystopia yeah. isn't kind of like, you know, the, the empire in Star Wars, you know, a kind of like fascist top-down society. It's a kind of society that values no life or that views life as not inherently valuable. And for the Benny Tleleks in Dune, They've converted all of the women in their societies into just like birthing pods. Mm. They only exist to give birth. What this book does as well, I think, is to reduce not, not all women, but like these people who are assigned into the role of birthing mother. Oh, yeah. Like their job is just you give birth. There's no family ties. There's no love. There's no larger significance. I think they're separated from the child immediately and, and the child is assigned to different families. So that kind of like reduction to the purely biological happens to the women, but also happens to the children too. What we found with the baby Gabriel was that if he continued crying too much, they were just going to euthanize him, which I believe Jonas was totally chill with until he started having the ability to create emotional attachments. And that means mm. first having the ability to feel emotions and then being able to create an attachment through the emotions that he felt to Gabriel. At which point when he realized that Gabriel was going to be euthanized, he was like, okay, we got to get out. The way people experience things, again, there's that limited perception. So he doesn't even have the ability to have an attachment, but also he doesn't know what euthanasia is. Gabriel's just going to be released. And yeah. after he sees the video of his father releasing one of the twins, that's when he goes and basically kidnaps Gabriel or goes and saves him so he can leave society. So it's it's two parts. It's society has engineered it so you don't know what certain you don't know the truth. And then also you can't experience certain certain experiences that allow you to understand the truth. Yeah. It's doubly limiting. I'll tell you one thing I loved about this book, which is when when Jonas is looking in on his father releasing the baby so his his father uses the same goo goo gaga oh yeah that he used with gabriel presumably with jonas as Mm. he's injecting them in the head (laughs) yeah Yeah. with (laughs) with the 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 kill juice and Mm. to me that was super effective because what it reveals is that these kind of like behaviors and habits that we experience as love coming from another person, that they can be performed without the actual feeling of love behind it. It's like a sociopathic mm. performance of love and good feeling, familiarity, but it's done while killing a child. So that, that was that was good job. Good job, Lowry. That was very good writing. That 
that part. Very unforgettable. As a, as a dystopia and as utopias, and this has been a while since we've read them, but we read Utopia, and I think there's a lot of comparisons between that book, which is considered the first utopia book, which is all about rules. And Giver, the whole first half of the book is just establishing the rules and how these people live. And in Utopia, it's everyone wears a certain color. You are not raised by your family. You're raised by other people. Are you talking about Thomas More's Utopia or Utopian fiction in general? Sorry, Thomas More, Sir Thomas More's Utopia, that book. We want to start comparing this as a dystopia or utopia to other books that we've read. I'll just do a preliminary by saying I do think it's fair to talk about utopias when talking (laughs) about dystopias because even, even in our early utopian fiction reads, there's always a touch of dystopia hanging out in the background of all utopias. There's always mm. a little something there that makes you be like, mm, don't know about that <laughs> one. Mm. I think both strains are kind of present at all times. They kind of lean on and rely on each other. So mm. yeah, what were you saying about Thomas More's Utopia? There's one thing I want to return to later about whether or not the author always thinks their utopia needs dystopia or will necessarily have it. Because Plato, I think in The Republic, if there's a dystopia lurking in there. Certainly readers react to it in a way, but I don't know if it's intentional. And same with Sir Thomas More, I'm not sure. I'll just say about Plato, I do think yeah. that within the text itself, Plato kind of brushes it all away as impossible or... Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. Well, utopia, what is the what is the actual real definition of utopia? Didn't we find out that it just means impossible place? No place. No, no place. place. Yeah. D- right. Topos... Well, okay, so there's a there's it's a pun. place. Here, let me stop pouring my stone. Oh, so I can right. Get my face on the screen. So there's a pun there where utopia means like no place, yeah. but then it's it's a cognate with utopia, which good. is good place. So like yeah. the good place, it's a, it's a there's layers to this stuff. There's layers, so good place <laughs> and no place. The good place mm. doesn't actually exist. Right. You could, yeah, yeah, but yeah, so. Carry on. Carry on, soldier. Well, so maybe for, for Sir Thomas More and Plato, that's part of the joke, potentially, that yes, we can create the perfect place. There are no downsides, but it is impossible. It's a no place. We can create it, but what's the point? We can't actually live it. Maybe as an experiment, we can try and take something from that to put it into a real society. At no point did I feel like Sir Thomas More's utopia was an appealing place to live. It was a funny place to live. It's a funny place to live. <laughs> or like let's let's talk about Samuel Delaney's wait, was that Samuel Delaney? Samuel Which Butler. One? Sorry, Samuel Butler. Erewhon? <laughs> Erewhon, yeah, yeah. Mm. Which is of course an anagram for nowhere. nowhere. So yeah. Playing along with that joke. But like they, this is a society that is perfect, but they also have like destroyed all machines and technology. And I think they were gonna like either the kill them or prison. Yeah, they're yeah. going to kill him or imprison him for having a pocket watch or something like that. So, so yeah, there's there's all these elements at play that are like silly, goofy, but also like, mm. oh, it's perfect, but you wouldn't actually want to be there. What this book captures is the moment of impossibility, because I do think that everyone is quite happily living there. But th- what that mm. moment of impossibility is, is the child who recognizes that it's all false. Well, maybe with these other utopia or dystopian books, you kind of get the moment of like, okay, so like, let's take 1984. There's an ingrained resistance movement built into it that our character kind of discovers. The moment of falsity is already present within the system, or at least lurking in the background. But Mm -hmm. 
In this book, there's no resistance to the system outside of the moment that a child comes into awareness of the system being false. An insight that he shares with the giver, but and perhaps only the giver. I think only the giver. And then eventually Gabriel, if, if Jonas and Gabriel even survive. Yeah. And if there's an outside society. I like this idea of the, the moment of impossibility or the child seeing through, seeing that it is nowhere, seeing that this utopia, this good place is nowhere. It's almost like a loss of innocence or just seeing the truth, seeing the light, and then you can't go back. Yeah. Now that he can have these emotions, he's not willing to sacrifice them. He, he almost, when he escapes, he almost dies. He's going to freeze to death. And he, he starts to regret ever leaving. And he says, oh my God, I'm starving. They told me before when I was saying I'm starving, I wasn't using precise language. Now I'm literally starving. Yeah. And he says, I wish I hadn't left. But then he says, what would I actually be giving up? I'd be starving color. I would be starving from love. I'd be starving from all these other things. You learn what you do sacrifice and you have to make the decision about whether or not you're going to stay in this limited life. And I think that's when we can compare it very clearly to, I think, a very specific kind of dystopia or utopia. And that's one that is pretty well established, or at least the, the granddaddy story is by Ursula K. Le Guin, Those Who Walk Away from Omelas. We mentioned it earlier. Some context is this is a short story Le Guin describes this perfect place where people dance in green fields and wear ribbons in their hails and it's in their hair and it's this hippie wonderland. But in the basement, there is a child who has been tied there in the dark, no light for years and years and years. There's no bathroom. They just have to sit in their own filth. There are brooms that menace them. They think that they're monsters, and this child's life is just hell. It's a person who's living in hell. And there's yeah. this tradition that when you become an adult, you go and see the child. If you can accept this, that someone is suffering endlessly for your happiness, then you stay with the society. If you can't accept it, then you have to leave. So for Jonas, it's, oh, I have to sacrifice my own individuality or my own experience as a real human being. So he has to sacrifice himself. He decides not to do that, and he leaves society. I really like that the giver is continuing this this very specific this very specific tradition of the dystopia. Yeah. You can take it, or you can leave. And the reason you leave is someone is eternally suffering, you or someone else. The ones who walk away from Omelas also addresses a rhetorical thing I didn't like about the giver. Which was, okay. I talked about at the start of the episode, how I didn't feel like Lowry was offering us enough of a utopia for us to buy in as readers that there's some reason for them to give up color. What Le Guin does is <laughs> she kind of leaves the utopia up to the reader's imagination. So she's like, imagine some people, mm. maybe they're dancing, maybe they're, mm. you know, like Le Guin never specifically describes her utopia. It's always left up to the reader's imagination. She gestures like, oh, possibly they're doing this thing or possibly they're doing that. I leave it up to you, the reader, to really fill in the blanks here. I'm going to give you the outlines and you color it in, reader, with whatever you personally think the perfect utopia is. And then I'm going to cut it out beneath your legs with this kit. <laughs> Where, but whereas with, with Lowry, she's, she's giving us the details and not mm. really leaving anything to the imagination. I feel like what we've had to do in this episode is convince ourselves that there is actually something in Lowry's world that is worth living in. Yeah. But I think in Lowry's perspective, she makes it quite easy to walk away from this world. I want to return exploring this idea. I want to look back at the, the audience idea and the age for people reading this. 
And this, of course, I think this was published 35 years ago, almost around there. Published quite a long time ago for eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds. Kids love this book. All my students, I talk to them like, wow, it's such an interesting book. You know, to some extent, I wonder if it's too, if it's leaving too many gaps for someone to infer or someone to figure it out on their own or paint in their own utopia, will readers be left behind if they're eight or nine years old? Yeah. I'm not sure. No, no, you're right. You're right. Because the way we paint in Mm. these gaps is by appealing to genre, right? Mm. So like Mm -hmm. when Le Guin says, oh, you know, fill in the blanks, what we do to fill in the blanks is we say to ourselves, what is our idea of a utopia? It's X, Y, Z. Well, where do we get these ideas of what a utopia is? By reading or watching or viewing things that are utopian, that participate within that genre of utopian or dystopian works. So Mm. if you're a child, you probably don't have the frame of reference. I know I I can't think of a single utopian or dystopian fiction. I was reading at age of nine, you know, the the age in which this book is usually assigned. So what what Lowry needs to do is to really give it all, to to give us everything to leave no ambiguity so that as a child if they don't have that template this can be their template yeah that's for you think it's got to be taught almost you got to be walked yeah. through it for us we've read lots of science fiction we've read lots of dystopia sometimes it felt like it's missing a little bit of exploration or a little bit of kind of weird pizzazz that good science fiction has but this book is very short and i totally Thankfully. understand well yeah okay if it were in this style if it were this style for much longer it would be tedious yeah but I follow with the character. I know why the character, why Jonas is deciding to leave and why it's important for him to leave. I remember, I think, when I was maybe nine or 10 reading this, thinking, wow, I completely understand and I see why he has to leave a place like this. Could I read Omelas at nine or 10? Probably not. You're right. It's the template. Yeah. But it's effective when it's your first template. I think it's a very good first template. Well, I think this is probably a good good place to end it i just want to ask you one question okay every time he said his name Bing. did weezer play in your head <laughs> carrying that wheel because <laughs> it did for Thanks me to all you showed up <laughs> all right talk to you later bob talk to you later zach